Well, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here again. Uh, we're glad you're here. Christmas already. Are you surprised that it come fast? Do you like the set? Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, good. No, we like the set. We like Christmas. I love this time of year. Comes fast. I know there's a... It's kind of interesting in our culture, if you think about it, Christmas. Christmas is a major religious holiday, but it's also the largest secular holiday. And so you have millions of people basically celebrating two different holidays at the same time. Have you noticed that? And so we see changes that happen as a result of that. For example, when you're out in the public square enjoying the public festivities of Christmas, it seems like the origins of Christmas are being squeezed out a little bit. And so when you're uh, maybe shopping, you hear less joy to the world and more have a holly jolly Christmas. You know what I mean? That kind of happens. And I got to tell you... I just really don't care for the, the non-religious Christmas carols. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them. It's okay to have fun, sentimental songs about Christmas. So I know a lot of you probably like those. And that's okay. Not saying it's, I'm just kind of a humbug on that. I don't know why. I just don't really care for Christmas songs that don't have anything to do with God or Jesus or the real meaning of Christmas. Just my personal preference But uh, maybe I'll get over that someday. I don't know. But if you think about it, what about the other side? So there's some things that eh, aren't my favorite. What about non-religious people who love to celebrate Christmas? But for them, it probably seems like the traditional Christmas keeps intruding on their holiday. And so every once in a while... um, Maybe they're, they're going through, and, and there is a, a traditional Christmas song, and they have, to, they have to answer their child's question who asks them, what's that music mean? Born to, to give them second birth. And so then maybe the non-religious person is, is sort of irritated. They got to explain that. I mean, what does that mean to their child? They don't even know what that means. And so I guess that goes both ways, Right? But here's what I I want us to think about. We're starting this series, Rethink Christmas. And what I want us to realize is is we need to rethink Christmas and and get back to the, the roots of what Christmas is all about. But also that we have this opportunity in our culture right now to reintroduce people to the original meaning of Christmas. Our our culture, like much of Western culture, has lost touch with its roots. And a lot of those roots intersect with historic Christianity. And so we have an opportunity at Christmas time. It's a, a really like a God-given opportunity to share with people what the original meaning of Christmas is. And so I think maybe I should embrace that a little more and think about that. 
as we celebrate Christmas in the public square. Well, today, as we, we launch into this Rethink Christmas, I wanted to start with a passage of, of Scripture, really wanted to start at the beginning. And what, what I wanted to, to jump in on was really the, it's the part of the Christmas story that is always left out. And it's the genealogy. What most people would consider the worst, you know, or the most boring part of the Christmas story. Think about it. Matthew starts, and if you've ever started reading Matthew in, in chapter 1, about the second begot, or the third, the father of, you're ready to skip down to where the action starts, right? That's what I'm talking about. Because I think that even in, in seemingly the most boring part of the Christmas story, even in the genealogy, there are some major takeaways, some lessons for us as believers that we really need to, to grasp. Well, I want us to start in Matthew chapter 1. And beginning verse 1, it says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And then it starts, right? And then all these weird names, and we're, they don't make a lot of sense, and we get a little bogged down. That's when we start scanning down looking for the action, as I said. What's interesting about this is that for Matthew's readers, the genealogy was totally expected, but what they found in the genealogy would have been totally unexpected. Although they expected a genealogy, they would have been surprised at what it is. Some of you know I was on vacation last week, all of our family went out to Colorado, so the whole family was out there. And for us in Ohio, that's three different families going out three different ways, some by air, some by car, and three different waves to get us all out there. But on the way out there, there was some issue. We had a, a vehicle issue, and a car got left in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so when it was time for everybody to head back, Zach and I stayed a little bit longer, and then we cut up through Kansas, up into Nebraska to go retrieve this car in Lincoln. And so we were doing that. Well, on our trip, we ended up in a very small town, an obscure town, I wouldn't even mention the name, in Kansas, although I'm sure nobody's ever been there. Little bitty town in Kansas, and we need a place to stay, and there was no motels or hotels in this town. And so what we found is that they had a bread and a bed and breakfast. You know what? Last service, I kept saying bread and breakfast. I must be hungry. Bread and breakfast. Bread and breakfast. In this town, all they had was a bed and breakfast. And I got to tell you, first of all, how many of you are bed and breakfast people that you stay at bed and breakfast? I've never stayed at a bed and breakfast, and I've never wanted to stay at a bed and breakfast. I have all these expectations, and they're negative expectations, of what a bed and breakfast would be like. 
we roll into this place and it, we're not five minutes there and every one of those bad expectations of a bed and breakfast came to be realized. <laughs> and I walk in and the first thing the lady does is introduce me to her dog, Dinky, in a sweater who's the boss of the place. You know, and it just, it basically went downhill from there. And we're standing in this little foyer uh, Going to a bed and breakfast, it's like going to, your, to a great-grandmother's house, but she's not your great-grandmother. She's somebody else's great-grandmother. We, we go in there, and there are trinkets and stuff all over the place, just, just things on shelves everywhere where you feel like if you turn around, you're going to knock things down. And then we're, we're taken back to a room sort of like the old westerns where you walk down the long hallway and, and you have one of those keys and opens the door and we go in and very clean, two nice beds. The, the bathroom had a claw tub in it and there was a, a pipe that came up to give you a shower and then a loop, you know, to pull the little curtain, which, by the way, if you're a regular-sized person like me, meant the curtain was always touching your body the entire time that you were taking the shower, and thus you knew it was touching everybody else's body, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway. So it was what I was expected. It was what I was expecting, I guess, in a bed and breakfast, but it was, it was all the worst things that I expected. Well, this is kind of how it is with the genealogy with Jesus. The Jewish people, and Matthew is primarily concerned with the Jewish audience as opposed to other gospel writers, and they're expecting a genealogy, but it turns out this, as they get into the genealogy, this is way worse than they could have ever expected. Expected the genealogy, didn't expect how bad that it could be. But basically what I want to see as we look at this is really there are three important takeaways that I believe that we can get, lessons that we can glean from the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the first is this, that the birth of Jesus is good news, not wishful thinking. Notice, Matthew doesn't start by saying once upon a time. You know, once upon a time signals to us, hey, this may be a pretty good story, but this is not true. Matthew goes out of his way to ground the story of the birth of Jesus into history by giving the whole lineage, the ancestral line, right down to Jesus Christ himself. He's not just giving us a nice idea. He's giving us the record of the birth of Christ. These aren't fables. They're not expiring the stories of Jesus. They're not expiring examples of how we live. The people who are involved in the stories of the birth of Jesus, the shepherds, the parents, the wise men, these people are not examples for us to follow. It's a narrative of what actually took place in history 2,000 years ago. It really happened. 
an actual event. And that's the first thing that we need to get, that his birth was real, grounded in history at a point in time that is documented. We talk about this a lot here at Grace. It used to be some people would kind of challenge whether Jesus Christ of Nazareth ever even existed. No serious historian does that anymore. No one. Everybody recognizes that Jesus of Nazareth existed 2,000 years ago, and not only that, but that he was the most influential person who lived in all of human history. By far, no, nobody close, the most influential person in all of Western civilization. No historians argue that. Now, they may argue whether Jesus is the son of God, and they may have different views, but nobody's arguing that he existed. And Matthew's making sure that we understand that. That the birth of Jesus is good news, not wishful thinking. Secondly, the takeaway that I want us to get is that the birth of Jesus is surprisingly inclusive. And I think we, we, this is what is very surprising. This is what would have surprised the people. This is what would have been unexpected to first century Jewish people who are reading this account. Surprisingly inclusive. One of the things is Zach and I were coming back alone, uh, everybody else having already come back to Ohio. We were going through these small towns and Zach, Zach's a history buff. He's, he's into the history of Fremont, the history of Green Springs. He's into ancestry. We're, and so he knows all these places where we have ancestors buried. One time we're on a staff trip uh, within the last year, and we were in Pennsylvania somewhere, and we, he wakes me up early one morning and says, hey, Dad, before we go to this event, I want us to drive over. We have a, a, a relative, an ancestor that fought in the Revolutionary War, and he's buried on somebody's farm about a mile and a half from here. You know, so we go do that. Well, we're driving through Kansas, and so we're going by all these little towns, and he knows all these different cemeteries where we have people buried, and one of them where we have a lot of people, one where the cemetery is named after so we do that, and then I'm always saying, well, Zach, I don't know if we have time to do that. We need to make some tracks, and we're making good time. And then he'll say, okay, we'll just, we'll just hit it the next time we're in this obscure corner of Kansas in this <laughs> tiny little town, just you and I traveling through. We'll do it then. And I'm like, all right, all right, let's do it. <laughs> but you go back and you find out you have all these different people that you're related to. Not that there's anything special about them or anything. It's just cool to see how, how families lived and how they migrated across the United States. And it's just interesting stuff if you get into it. Well, the first century people in Israel were way more into it than we typically are. I mean, family was everything. Where you came from was who you were. It was a way, genealogies were a way in the first century that people introduced themselves to each other. Today, when we're introducing ourselves to someone, maybe we want a job or we want to enter, we typically would have something like a resume. 
And then in that resume, that would say, hey, here, these are my accomplishments, this is my education, this is where I've been, this is what I've done, this is who I am. But in the first century, the genealogy was the resume. And it would say, hey, we're, we're of Jewish origin, you know that, of the 12 tribes, we're this tribe, of those tribe, we belong, I belong to this clan, and because of that, this is who I am. And people would go, oh, that's who you are. Same thing. And not only that, in the first century, they would tweak their genealogies just like we tweak our resumes today. You know what I'm talking about, tweaking a resume, right? Oh, no, nobody knows what I mean by that. <laughs> that means we, we put in the good stuff, we pack it full of the accomplishments and the things that we want to project to people, but we leave out the failures, we leave out the bad stuff, we leave out the dead space. You know what I mean? For example, we have, we have examples of Herod the Great recording his own genealogy and it's tweaked. He leaves out the people that he'd rather not be thought to be connected to. And then he pumps up the people that are more impressive that's in his line. So we have records of that, how he tweaked his own genealogy. Now, the interesting thing about Matthew as he records the genealogy of Jesus for us, as he does just the opposite of what Herod does. He doesn't tweak it. If anything, he emphasizes the worst parts of Jesus' genealogy. It's surprisingly inclusive. And I think there is a lot that we can learn from that, and I'll give you an example. Some of the people that he names are not Jewish people, very unimpressive to a Jewish audience. He names four women today. That would be very natural for us. In the first century, very unusual to name one woman, and typically that would be the, the person's direct mother, but to name four women. Not only that, as he's naming these women and others, He's pointing out the worst parts of the genealogy of Jesus. First woman that he names is a woman named Tamar. You might remember her. She's a lady that comes up in an Old Testament story. As a matter of fact, she was uh, the wife of Judah's first son. Judah, one of the main sons of Israel, he took a Canaanite wife which Abraham, by the way, made sure that Isaac did not have a Canaanite wife. So, but he took a Canaanite wife. They had three sons together. Huge, that's big. His first son marries, he arranges for him to marry this lady named Tamar. He marries her, but Judah's eldest son is evil in the sight of the Lord and he dies. Judah then arranges for Tamar to go in to his second son who's married, Onan. And so she goes to him so that Onan can provide for her a child, an heir, which was according to Jewish law of the time. So he does that. He arranges for Tamar to be given to Onan for this to happen. But Onan spends the night with her but makes sure that she doesn't get pregnant, thus defying his father Judah, but also defying the law of God. And then 
he dies. And now the third son is Sheila, and, and Sheila's still young. He's too young to have a wife. And so he, and he's already lost two sons to Tamar, he might be thinking. So he sends Tamar to go live with her husband. I'm sorry, to go live with her. I, I may have had a little bit too much NyQuil last night, so if I'm messing things up, that's what it is. Judah sends his daughter-in-law, Tamar, to live with her father until Sheila, which is a weird name for a guy, grows up and becomes a man. Well, years go by. Tamar realizes Sheila has reached the age of manhood, but Judah is never going to invite her to be with his third son because he's already lost too. As she starts understanding that, she comes up with a plan. She disguises herself as a prostitute. In the meantime, Judah's wife has died. She disguises herself as a prostitute, and she plants herself on a way that she knows that Judah is traveling. She tempts Judah. Judah arranges for her services. They have a connection And Judah has no means of payment with him at the time, so he gives this woman his cylinder, his uh, kind of an ancient form of ID, his mark, his seal, and his staff. He gives these to her saying, I'll bring you payment and I'll reclaim those, just down payment. He leaves, he sends a servant back with a lamb payment. The prostitute is not there anymore. And so, end of story. Some time rolls on, and then he hears from Tamar's father's household that Tamar is pregnant. And he's enraged. And so he calls for her because he's going to punish her according to law. He wants to put her to death. And so she shows up at his place, and then he's getting her to confess, and then she says, yes, I'm pregnant, and the father of my child belongs to these. And she produces the cylinder and the staff that belongs to Judah, and Judah freaks. And he confesses, I'm more sinful than she is. Tamar goes on to have twins. It's written right into the account. We see it in verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. But here's my point. Why, Why even mention Tamar? Why not just Judah was the father of Perez and Perez the father of Hezron? Why even go into Tamar? By the way, why mention Zerah, who's not even in the line of Jesus? Why is he included? It's all put in there by Matthew. So he will recall for all of his Jewish readers the entire sordid story of an incestual relationship. Messy, right? Something we would cover up. He exposes for everyone to see. 
Another lady mentioned is Rahab. Rahab makes her living as a prostitute. And her story is back in the time of the conquest of the land where the people have left Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. They come in to conquer the land. The first enemy city they come to is Jericho. And inside Jericho is a woman who lives as a prostitute. Her name is Rahab. She's heard about Israel. Israel sends some spies to check things out. She discovers these spies and decides to commit treason against her own country to protect them because she believes in the God of Israel that they're going to conquer this land. After they conquer, she actually marries a Jewish man named Solomon and in their lineage is Boaz and ultimately Jesus. See, that's, those are not the stories that we would put in our resume. Those are not the stories you would find in a genealogy. It's not expected. It's very unusual. Why even mention the women at all? They're normally not in there. It's to recall all the messiness of life. But then when we think it's getting better, it jumps right here to verse 6. Jesse was the father of David, the king. Now we're getting somewhere. David, he's the greatest king of Israel. But it continues. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who, he had, been, who had been the wife of Uriah. Why mention that? Actually, the word Bathsheba is not even in this text. It actually reads something like this. David was the father of Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. It's just the translators are telling us who the her is. Of course, we already know that is Bathsheba. What's going on? Why mention this? Because Matthew is forcing his readers who knew Jewish history to not just remember that David was the greatest king, but also remember the darkest time of David's life. I don't know if you remember, but after David had risen to fame, having killed Goliath, he, he was famous among the Jewish people, but then the king, King Saul, became jealous of David. King Saul tried to kill David. David had to flee for his wife. He did that out in the wilderness because he was always on the run, and he was always being looked for by King Saul's army to put him to death. When he was out there in the wilderness, all by himself, 30 men, mighty men, came to join David in the wilderness. And they gave up everything. They gave up their lives, and they risked their lives every day to protect David, who may one day be king. They did that for years and years. They gave up everything. Now, eventually, so, and, and David would not lift a finger against Saul or, or allow any of his men to do that. Eventually, Saul dies. David becomes king. And he's a great king. And he still has his mighty men. The, the few people that were with him back before he was king. And he's fighting wars on all fronts. And he's being very successful. But then all of a sudden, we find this point in his life after his successes, where he's no longer out on the battlefield, right? 
He's back in Jerusalem while his army is fighting. He's goofing off. And he's at the palace and he's killing time and he's bored. And he looks out and he sees a woman on a rooftop bathing. And it turns out that she's the wife of Uriah, one of David's closest friends, one of his mighty men, one of the guys who was with him in the dark days before he was king who risked his life to protect him. David finds out who she is, makes an arrangement to meet her. He sleeps with her. Some time passes and she sends word to David, I'm pregnant. David then arranges for Uriah, a man he knew personally and went, knew for years, went way back with a man who gave everything to protect David. He arranges for Uriah to be put in a place in the battle, have everybody else withdraw so that he's killed by the enemy. On David's part, that's called murder. He has Uriah murdered. He then marries Uriah's wife, wife Bathsheba, adds her to his stable of wives that he already has. When it's time for the baby to come, the baby dies in God's judgment. But they eventually have another child, a second child named Solomon, the second greatest king in Israel. Why? Why would Matthew go out of his way to bring up the worst sordid details of Israel's history that, that are in the line of Jesus, the Messiah? Why doesn't he even name Bathsheba by name in the original text? It's not a slam on Bathsheba. It's a slam on David. He had Solomon by the wife of his friend, Uriah. And then the third lesson. You, you see what he's teaching us there? This inclusiveness? Jesus, the coming of Jesus breaks down all gender barriers, all racial barriers, all moral barriers. And the third takeaway from the genealogy is this. God takes his time, but always keeps his word. God takes his time, but he always keeps his word. We see that right in the first verse here. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why that way? Why David, Abraham? Well, Abraham was almost 2,000 years before Jesus. And God had promised that through Abraham, all the world, all the people of the world would be blessed. But that was almost 2,000 years ago. And then David, 
The promise was that through David's line, who was also in Abraham's line, that there would be a new king. But again, it's been hundreds and hundreds of years. As a matter of fact, before, after David, then we have a succession of kings and things start breaking down after Solomon worse and worse. Pretty soon they're exiled and so the whole king thing is over. Then some prophets are raised up and they speak for God. But now before the birth of Christ, it had been 400 years, no prophets, no king, no anything. Nobody representing God, seemingly forgotten. The promise seems to be dead. God takes his time, but always keeps his word. Can you imagine 400 years since they've heard anything from God? Our country is only a couple of hundred years old. 400 years, they haven't heard anything. No doubt scholars of the time were were talking about, well, that's just a metaphorical Messiah, you know, not somebody really going to show up and, and all those things. Here's what I'm saying. You cannot judge God by your calendar. If you do, you'll always be disappointed. God may appear sometimes to be slow to us. but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or not at all, but his promises will come true. And when they do, and they will, they're always more and better than we imagine. It's just a reminder for us, God's grace it does not operate on our timetable. It's not the way we would do it. He doesn't follow our agendas or our schedules. And we see this all through Scripture. A few weeks ago, in a different series, we were talking about the encounters of Jesus. And, and when we think about timing, one of those times were when a friend of Jesus' named Lazarus had died. If you remember that story we talked about a few weeks ago. So a friend of Lazarus has died. His two sisters, who are also friends of Jesus, are distraught. They sent word to Jesus when Lazarus was sick before he died. But by the time Jesus gets there, and Jesus didn't seem to be in a hurry, Lazarus is dead. We talked about how both sisters, Mary and Martha, when they first saw Jesus when he arrived at two different times, they said the exact same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus, in his genius, how he answered really replied to them in two different ways. But the point was this. To them, too late. Game over. If you would have only been here, if you'd only have come when we first sent for you. But then later that day, they realized what? God's timing is always perfect. He works on his own time. 
and he does greater than we ever imagined. Here's what I'm saying. If you impose your timetable on God, you'll not feel loved by him. You'll not feel like he cares, and it'll be your fault because he does love you. And if you trust him, he'll meet your deepest needs. You see, this all happens at a time where Israel, they think that, G, that God has forgot his promises, that there's not a Messiah coming, that that's all ancient history. But he came, and he changed the world, and he came in ways that we couldn't imagine. Nobody expected the divine king to be born in an animal stall, in a feeding trough. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody knew how God would work. and Nobody saw that it was only by his coming in weakness and ultimately dying on a cross that we could be saved. God kept his promise. What are our takeaways from the genealogy of Jesus? The birth of Christ was good news, not wishful thinking, not just a great idea, not just a fable. What are our takeaway of the genealogy of the birth of Jesus? that the birth of Jesus was surprisingly inclusive. Why are all these Gentiles, prostitutes, dysfunctional family people mentioned in the genealogy? Interestingly enough, a few years later in the life of Jesus, what, what are, is he being accused of? Why are you hanging around with prostitutes and sinners all the time? in his line. It's the whole point. That's us. That's why he came. To meet the needs, the biggest need of sinners like you and me. Well, Kevin, if he's come, if he loves us and he's come to meet the needs of sinners, of you and me, why am I going through all the stuff I'm going through? Why? Why would God allow that to happen if he cares so much? Because God takes his time. But he always, always, always keeps his word. And if you trust him, he will always, always, always meet your deepest need. And that's why we can have joy at Christmas. Even when we're reading the genealogy. 
and we feel like scanning right on down to where the real action begins. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every word in your word, every word in the Bible. Because even the parts that that we see as maybe not integral to the story, there's a reason that you've given them to us. And they mean something. And they're grounded in history. And these events really happened. And God, your timing is always perfect. And God, you want to include every one of us. And God, we thank you for that and the joy that brings to us. And Father, we pray that at this Christmas time, that you would help us to reintroduce Uh, the non-religious maybe people in our culture to the real meaning of Christmas so that they could have the same joy that we have. Father, thank you for loving us. Lord, help us to celebrate this holiday, the, the birth of your son who brings hope to our world. Lord, help us to celebrate in a way that brings honor to you. And God, let us show forth the joy that you have put in our hearts because of that. God, thanks for loving us like that. Thanks for loving us in ways that we can never figure out. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here today. Hope to see you next week as we continue in our series. Have a great day.